I've always tried to separate religion from God. And religion, I've never changed my mind about. It's a man-made institution that is done for many reasons that are about either controlling people or, you know, giving people hope, I think is the biggest reason for religion. Because humans have the ability to reason and to think, the thought of this is all there is is a very dire thought. And religion avails you of that thought. So the best thing religion can do is get you to not realize how fleeting your existence can actually be. Larry Wilmore has one of the most impressive resumes in TV. From In Living Color to The Bernie Mac Show, The Daily Show to Blackish and Insecure, he now hosts the Larry Wilmore Black on Air podcast and is always developing something new and interesting. Larry's one of the smartest, funny people I know. He jokes on hot topics with a cool jazz elegance. His humor is both analytical, which is why he's a great writer, and compassionate, which is why he's a great person. And I'm delighted to welcome him here to Ye Gods. Larry, how are you? Great. Scott, can you be my publicist from now on? <laughs> I need a, a copy of this recording just to play. This is what people think of me, you guys. <laughs> what What is it like now that you've been uh, hosting this podcast? How is it? Does it bring out a different side of you as you prepare for it? And does it please you in, in different ways than your television work? Absolutely. I always said, if everything went away and all I did was talk to people in my podcast, I'd be a happy man. You know, I've had a good career and everything, but I wouldn't want that to go away, the interacting with people. And let me put it this way. When I was a kid, one of the things I wanted to be was a scientist or an astronaut. I was very much into that. And one of the reasons is probably because I love discovering things, you know, so I love hearing people's stories and finding out new things. And you only get that from interacting with people. Luckily, I have a platform where I can interview people and find out what's going on with them. So it brings out the curious side of me, which doesn't always get to come out in your other work. Like when I'm, most of the work I've done in television is storytelling. So it's a different muscle that you're using. Late night TV is more disseminating information or distilling something, you know, especially when you have to do it all the time and that that can get so exhausting, but just to be more open and just be a receiver of something is so much more relaxing, you know, where you get to just hear something and interact and it's just more natural, you know? And so that's, what's fun about it. Well, it's interesting. You talk about discovery and curiosity, because as I was doing research, one of the things that I, that I found out that I think I knew at the time, but I, but it's but it's been a while, is in 2012, when Obama was running against Mitt Romney, Republican senator from Utah, you go out to Salt Lake City right. to do a special for Showtime, hmm. but you don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but your curiosity yeah. is propelling you to go there to find out. And how did that work out once you got there? It was great, Scott. I was trying to figure out the type of show that I wanted to do. And the basic premise of the show was I wanted to do a show where rather than be a voice on the coast talking about the people in the country, you know, I wanted to go out into the country and talk to people and do a show where 
part of my panel would include people who are from the region that I'm in, who would represent that region, as well as, you know, you're doing a show, so hopefully you could have a celebrity or, some, or somebody to note. And so I, I imagined a show doing that where I would be in a different city each time and incorporating somebody from that place. So we're, it was the basic idea was called Larry Wilmer Talks to America. That was the basic idea. And when you go through the development, they wanted to try it out first. I mean, it came, it became one specific thing tied to the election. And we, I decided to go to Utah because that's where Mitt Romney was from. And I felt like there was a lot we just don't know about Mormons. I felt that I didn't know. And I, and I felt there was a lot of either misinformation or just non-information about Mormon, Mormon culture, you know, that sort of thing. I chief among them felt I didn't know that much. And I, it was very important for me to have people in the community who were either in the Mormon culture or knew things about it that might be interesting and tie it to the coming election and not so much be any uh, takedown or a thing about Romney, because I don't even think we mentioned Romney in the whole special. But man, I met so many interesting people and learned so, so many things that I just didn't know. So from Larry the Little scientists, you know, making those discoveries. It, it was fun. I was so glad I did it. I want to go to you growing up in Pomona, California, and you're one of six kids. Mm -hmm. What religion was there in your household when you were growing up? How was it presented? How much of a part of your home life was it? In the home itself, religion wasn't a really big deal, but I had the world was different back then too. Religion was a bigger part of the culture at large, like saying your prayers at night was just something everybody did. You know, it didn't, it didn't feel religious. It, that felt more cultural. Going to church on Sunday was more cultural than it was real religious. Everybody, everybody I knew went to church on Sunday or wherever. It was just more of a cultural thing. We didn't talk about it a lot. My, my parents were Catholic, but at least my father and my mom, I think became Catholic or was it, but we didn't talk about it a lot. We went to church on Sundays for a while. My parents were having problems. My father wasn't around that much, but I took to it uh, very much when I was a kid. We went to Catholic school when I started in fifth grade and I became an altar boy and I went to church a lot. You know, sometimes I'd end up just going by myself. There was a, a point where the we were all kind of fractured and I spent many Sundays just walking to church myself you know, or I bring my little brother and sister with me and that type of thing. I was really trying to be a good Catholic kid and that type of thing. And I think because of my altar boy experience, I felt a little closer to that. Did you at that point, did you buy into the whole program? Did, was there a point in your teenage years where you start, maybe you have some friends who are more cynical and you start to have doubts? In my teenage years, but not before that. And I never considered Catholic as a thing that was something to be thought about. It just, that's what we were doing. And when I started hearing criticism of the Catholic church or learning about how John F. Kennedy barely became president because he was Catholic, I'm like, why would they be worried that he was Catholic? That doesn't make sense to me. And learning the prejudice about the Catholic church, how not even considered Christian, I'm like, what? And as far as I was concerned, Catholic was the first church to come out of the lineage of Christ. And and Peter and Paul. So that didn't make sense to me. So I got curious, of course, in high school, and I got a bit cynical too. I had some questions about the culture of the church and their record on, on interracial marriage and that type of thing, and I wasn't happy with it. 
And I've always had questions about God and religion since I was a kid, when even when I was a young kid about death, you know, like I remember seven years old thinking, what is death? Like, where do you go? Like, where's Abraham Lincoln right now? Like, what happened? He's just gone, but that doesn't make sense. How are you just gone? And so I started having questions about what is existence in these types of things? Like, what is it really? How can it just appear and just go? And are you really somewhere after there? When I was in high school, I started having a lot of those questions. What was your first experience with death? I guess the first one that really hit me was when my great-grandmother passed away. It was in my first year in college, I believe. And at that time, I think I was, I don't think I was going to church much, and I was getting more agnostic in those days. So, yeah, when she died, that was the first, I remember I went into kind of a, you could call it depression. I had some really dark thoughts during that time. I just, because my family was going through a really horrible time during that period. I mean, our prospects were so grim in those days. My, I remember uh, our home life was just horrible. Our roof literally caved in. You know, my mom was, had like a nervous breakdown. My both of my sisters had gone into drugs and both had just had really tough time. And I was barely holding on going to a Catholic school at the time. My home life was horrible. And, you know, I present something else at school and that. So I was leading this dual life of just a horrible home life where it seemed like everything was falling apart. Two things kind of did something for me. One was my dad was a probation officer and decided to go back to school because one day he just thought, I want to be a doctor, you know, and he started taking just some classes and that type of stuff and got into medical school and started going that road. And I was very impressed by that. I'm like, how do you do that? You just turn around and keep in mind when my dad was coming up, like most blacks, the, because of the culture, the most you could hope for was like a civil service job. Like that was the thing, you know, you were discouraged from doing other things. You'd be a janitor, son, you're smart. Like that's the world he grew up in. Right. But my dad was brilliant and he realized, you know, I'm just going to become a doctor. I turned around in his late 30s and started studying, got into medical school and, and did it. And uh, the other thing was one summer I sold books door to door and that really saved my life in so many ways. One was, I don't want to say vision, but I had this moment when they were giving us instruction about selling and everything where I just kind of had this image and I always would have deja vu and that kind of thing, but this was stronger. I saw myself with a book and the book was open and there was a light coming out and I was in front of some people and I started crying. I was like, Oh my God, what is that? And it just was really moved. I didn't know if it was a vision that I was having or whatever. And I just, it made me feel like I was in the right place and that I was meant to be doing something important. This is a dream that you're having or how did this, how did this come to you? I was sitting, listening to them, and the vision just came in my head as they were talking. And I was as just, you're going through your indoctrination to become exactly. this door-to-door salesman. Yeah, they're saying things like, "Whether you can or whether you can't, you are absolutely right." That was one I never forgot. I thought that was very powerful, <laughs> and all these inspirational things, you know. Yeah. And then I just had this vision that felt more religious, and it really, really hit me in my solar plexus, and I started crying, and I didn't transferred into like a baby Christian type of thing. I transferred it into a motivational Larry type of thing. I, it gave, if I can't explain it, but it just made me not worry and made me feel like I had to do something. 
what you're getting out of this experience also links up with your admiration for your father going from probation officer yes. to becoming a doctor. That right. it's something real world constructive. You're being very pragmatic and the pragmatism involves acceptance by strangers. Correct. To get back to your religion, where since your those formative years, where are you now with this? Where, where are your thoughts now about death? I've always tried to separate religion from God. And religion, I've never changed my mind about. It's a man-made institution that is done for many reasons that are about either controlling people or you know, giving people hope, I think is the biggest reason for religion. Because humans have the ability to reason and to think, the thought of this is all there is is a very dire thought. And religion avails you of that thought. So the best thing religion can do is get you to not realize how fleeting your existence can actually be. There is no way as you're getting older yeah. that you're not, there was a phrase that Shakespeare has at the end of The Tempest where his lead character, who's basically his, the age that Shakespeare was when he wrote it, says uh, that uh, from now on, every third thought shall be my grave. Yes. There is no way that as you go on, the yeah. end of the end of your event horizon of your little life does not occur to you more as being a reality and not simply a concept. So the way that I've thought of my life is that it's I think it's better for me to get the most out of this life to have a fulfilling life rather than I'm building up points for another life and doing things properly in the building of those points. To me, I'm a believer, make the most of why you're here. Treat people the right way, you know, do the things that you should be doing because nothing is guaranteed, including an afterlife. Yeah, and I think that the religions that are the most specific about what the afterlife, if there is one, is going to be like are the ones that I distrust the most. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'm a, I agree with you on, um, there's no way that my mortal mind can conceive of, I, in the womb, I couldn't have conceived of this world. Yeah. So why in this world could I speculate with accuracy about yeah. a coming world? I kind of have a, the same thought of if there is a God and the God is a benevolent God, then if I have tried to be as good to all I meet as I possibly can, be as productive with whatever gifts I've been given, then a reasonable God, and I think that if there is a God, the God must be reasonable, that, I, that the afterlife will take care of itself if there is one. Mm -hmm. Or it'll be, again, Shakespeare, or it'll be the... Uh, being the traveler in the in the in the country from which no one ever returns, it'll be the eternal sleep. I want to ask a couple of questions that I ask everybody, and I want to hear your answers. The first yeah. is, okay, during times of stress, I mean, you kind of made a reference to this earlier, but mm -hmm. is there, are there is there a quote that has helped you get through? Is there a or a mm. piece of wisdom that was passed on down to you that you? find yourself going back to? One thing, and I take this from my Catholic upbringing, even though I say I'm Catholic now, I'm struggling to believe in Catholic Church, I'm Catholic. Um, we were dealing with our mom. I'm not talking on turn here because it's a, uh, <laughs> you 
you know, my sister's having some real issues with her and all that kind of stuff. You know how it goes with parents and kids and everything. She just didn't know what to do. And I said, this is what I do when I think about these things. There's issues. I just remember it's just one of the commandments, you know, honor my mother and my father, you know, you don't, it doesn't say be friends with your mother and father. You even have to like them or this and that, but you should honor them. Take it from a duty standpoint. So I look at some things more out of a duty or obligation or service or what I'm giving as opposed to what I'm getting. I turn around to what am I putting into this and just turn the equation around. When you take the attention off of yourself, I think it helps lift you out of certain things. How can I serve something as opposed to what can I get out of? I need something out of here that is going to, well, take the attention off yourself. How can you serve something? You know, so I don't know if there's a quote for that, but I do use that one of the commandments, actually, Ten Commandments, sometimes in that situation, where I look at those things and I try to turn the equation around. You know? Yeah, I think that um, I've gotten more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And then now, over a period of years, I'm getting more reinforced by, oh, I thought it was going to be terrible. It turns out to be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't you Lower glad you did this? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But, but in the, yeah. when I was much younger, if I thought that something wasn't going to be good, I, I avoided it and mm -hmm. it made my world smaller and yeah. it, it, and it, and it didn't give the universe the opportunity to be generous. Yeah. Uh, a, 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 an example, my sister in Denver has a not-for-profit called Global Minded. And what she does is she basically links up first-generation college students with colleges and corporations so that people who don't have mentors in their life get mm. access to people to ask questions to. And it's a three-day event. About 900 people were there that's in Denver. Denver. I'd never gone because I'd always been in production. And last year was the first year that I wasn't in production at the time. So I went expecting to endure it. Yes. And when I got there, what my sister started talking about is she's the youngest of their five of us four brothers, and then my parents finally were re rewarded with a female. And she talked about how growing up, her four older brothers gave her so much advice, led her to so many things that helped her in her career, kept her away from things that would not have been good for her. And so she said, I started this program nine years ago or 10 years ago to provide to people who don't have mentors in their lives like wow. I had my brothers. So powerful. And so, and it, incredibly powerful. And, and so I'm there sitting in the back of the room and I've got tears in my eyes because I'm realizing, oh, I came here thinking I was going to do a favor for my sister. Mm -hmm. I arrive and she's giving me a gift. And also we weren't always charitable to our younger sister, but I realize now she has blocked a lot of that and remembers mostly the good for which I am grateful. Let me tell you something. The power of mentorship is very real. I mean, sometimes people get caught up or as a society, we get caught up in macro things. You know, we got to fight for justice and that. But sometimes you got to go to micro to really be effective. And by micro, I mean dealing with individuals and people. Mentoring is one of the best things, especially for old geezers like us, Scott is very powerful. And I believe young people crave good mentorship. They really look towards it. They, they're not really, you're not really the old man yelling on the, on the lawn, you know, they want to hear from you and get 
you know, guidance in that point of view, because it can be very powerful. And I think that it doesn't even have to be a formal mentorship. I think it can be the times in your life when you give an encouraging word to somebody. I still remember vividly Gary Shandling saying that he thought I was funny. And I luxuriated in that for so long, you know, that I was on a, I was on a panel with him and somebody else, and I just kept crushing it. And he's just looking at me and go, you're hilarious, you know? <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't know who I was, you know? And we all went out to dinner, and he told me again, he says, you're really, I go, thanks, Gary. And then once he saw me do stand-up, and he said it again, and I was like, that's so nice. And I, But it, to me, it was, I admired him so much as a comedian. He's one of the first stand-ups that I looked to as like, God, if, if only I could be half as funny as Gary Shandling, I will have succeeded, you know? Cause he was just so, I mean, Gary's jokes were so funny when he came on the scene, they were just so funny. And to hear it from him meant so much to me. It, it, like things like that, I go back to, to remind myself, no, no, no Gary Shandling thought I was funny. You're okay, you're okay. You know? <laughs> he and I went to the same high school in Tucson, Arizona. Oh, I didn't know he that. He was a oh, senior when I was a freshman. We did not know each other then. But we became really good friends. He came to see a monologue that I did in a theater in Los Angeles. And then we became really good friends after that. Yeah. One of my favorite stories that, that Judd tells about him is all during the filming of 40-Year-Old Virgin, Gary kept leaving messages on Judd's machine that at the end of the movie, when he finally has sex, it's got to be the best sex ever. <laughs> and you've got to figure out a way to show that. Mm. And so one day Joe was talking to Steve Carell and Steve Carell said, I could sing. And that's how they got that great credits number of the age of Aquarius uh -huh. that ends 40 year old virgin, virgin, but it comes out of Gary calling Judd time after time uh -huh. to prod him to that note, which was the exact correct note. Yeah. So last question. If, if you woke up one day and you, had been named the benevolent dictator of the world with the world's agreement is that you only have one ceremonial function, which is you get to recommend to the world that everybody either uh, experience one work of art that you think could be life-changing for them. And, and the world wants to hear what you have to recommend. Here's what I would choose. I would say, <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous. But I would say everybody must watch Animal Crackers. It's the first Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> and we just have to watch it. You know, we can watch it together. You know, we can talk the whole world to it. <laughs> <We can discuss. laughs> it's not the perfect movie, but my kids, I've introduced them to the Marx Brothers. We still, they, my daughter, she'll come home and say, Dad, let's watch Duck Soup. You know, we'll still do something like that. You know. Oh, man. Oh, um, my. My kids were like that. And one of the great things about animal crackers and also coconuts is they were, they're yes. so young. Yes. When they make it. And, and, by, and by so young, 40. Yeah. And <laughs> they, uh, and these were plays, these were Broadway right. plays That's that they perfect. filmed at Astoria Studios in Queens. Correct. Yeah. George S. Kaufman. Yeah. George S. Kaufman and Maury Ruskind were the, were the two writers. And there's such an exuber, a youthful exuberance, this, this delightful energy that comes out of them. Yes, the anarchy that's in there, the free-flowing stuff, the Harpo at his funniest, Groucho saying things that are completely inappropriate, you know. Yeah. 
Hooray uh, for Captain Spaulding. Yes, exactly. In fact, the coconuts was the other one, but it's so raw, you know. Oh, it's so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Whenever I tell you you look like the Prince of Wales, I don't mean the present Prince of Wales, one of the old Wales. Believe <laughs> me, when I say Wales, I mean Wales. I know well when I see one. <laughs> yeah, and Margaret Dumont, unflappable yeah. in, in she's bewildered by him and yet intrigued yeah. by him. Yeah, can't you see um, what I'm trying to tell you? I love you. Why don't you marry me? Come on, you take me and I'll take a vacation. I'll need a vacation if we're going to be married. <laughs> when did you get when did you get hooked on them? I got hooked on the Marx Brothers. My dad took us to uh they were having a revival of them in the early 70s and I saw a a double feature of Animal Crackers with My Little Chickadee. So I saw the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields on the big screen and, and they West Yes, and it changed my life, my whole comedy life. You know, I became obsessed with the Marx Brothers. Part of me growing up is I obsessed with different famous people and mm -hmm. went down rabbit holes and have never yeah. come out from them. You know, yeah. Um, the, it was who it was. Uh, first one was Houdini, mm -hmm. and then it was the Marx Brothers. It was uh, Buster Keaton, and then it was the Beatles. Those are the four. You know, and I uh, and I've never my love for them has never waned. I have, they have filled my life with joy these years, you know. But the Mark Brothers, there's something about that humor that is the beginning of me having a sense of humor, I feel, you know. Oh, man, that's so it's, great. It's so interesting to me. You know, I connected with all three, with all of that energy, you know. And there's kind of anarchy in there that's still relevant today. Saying something that you're not supposed to say is what my comedy is, you know, but there's truth in there. There's there's slices of that. So I would want people to see Animal Crackers, to see the Marx Brothers at their, it's because it's not a great movie. It's not a perfect film. It's raw. It's all these things, but they're at their purest in Animal Crackers to me. They're never more pure than in, in that moment. I completely agree. And this is a great suggestion. I will rewatch it because you have now put it into my head. And Larry Wilmore, you are always a delight to talk to you, and I thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And now today's sermonette in my homily opinion. Larry saying how much Gary Shandling's praise meant to him brought to mind this story. One day in 2017, I got a call from Jed Apatow, the director and writer of 40-Year-Old Virgin and so many other hit comedies. Judd was Gary's protege, disciple, and later, after Gary died unexpectedly in 2016 at the age of 66, Judd became his evangelist and chronicle. I first met Judd in 1994 when Gary was a guest on Comedy Central's Politically Incorrect, whose first 1,100 episodes I produced. Gary, an obsessive comedy craftsman, brought young Judd with him to the taping, Judd stood in the wings with a yellow legal pad on which Gary had scribbled pages of comic notes. During commercial breaks, Gary bolted to the wings, rifled through the pages, found a gem or two, dashed back to his chair on the set just as taping resumed, and then presented those gems as inspired ad-libs to great laughter and applause. In the course of Gary's career, there were countless legal pads and journals and paper scraps. They were the Dead Sea Scrolls of Gary's comedy. 
And after he died, Judd poured through them, weaving Gary's words, like straw to gold, to form the four-and-a-half-hour loving tribute to his friend and mentor in The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling on HBO. But that day in 2017, Judd was calling about a one-sentence note on the back of an envelope. Judd said it mentioned me, might he messenger it to me to decode and tell him what Gary meant, and I said, yes, of course. What I soon received was a small envelope from the Four Seasons Hotel in Hawaii that was for Gary what the Fortress of Solitude was for Superman, a retreat when the pressures of Hollywood became too much for this supremely talented but uber-sensitive comic actor, writer, director, and producer on whom for so long so many careers depended. I read the words scrawled in Gary's big, loopy handwriting, then dialed Judd and told him the following. After Gary ended the groundbreaking Larry Sanders show on HBO in 1998, his career and life became unmoored. He wrote and starred in a flop movie that doomed any hope of a film career, And then there were countless legal battles with those who'd been the closest to him. Gary had long mined his life and career for his creativity, but when he sought peace of mind by relinquishing all of his power, that professional and personal quarry that he'd always depended upon had dried up, and he became kind of a King Lear of comedy. Every few months in those years, he and I would share a meal. One night in 2008, we dined at a beachside restaurant in Santa Monica. When Gary, whose celebrity radar was always on, noticed me noticing the couple being seated at the table behind him, he asked, who is it? And I said, oh, it's Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and his wife. Do you know much about him? Gary shook his head. I said, well, he's a lot like you. Uh, a genius from a troubled family. His his father was crazy like your mom. And like you, he was multi-talented, uh, adored by his peers. And for a while, everything he did succeeded. And then it stopped and he couldn't get his groove back and he became kind of a recluse in his bedroom. I paused. Gary was listening intently and then I went on. But here's the great part. Last year, He returned to the studio to complete his unfinished album from 40 years before. And he got a Grammy for the production on the very track on which he'd stopped work in 1967. I paused again, and then I decided to take a shot which I knew would either deepen our friendship forever or end it. I said, you know, you've got a gift, and you're not using it. And I think that gift is why you are here. After a long pause, he said, I know, I know, I'm trying. Give me six months. Well, Gary lived almost another decade. And at the often hilarious and heartbreaking memorial service that was held for him after he died, I think it was Sarah Silverman, whom he loved, who observed that after It's Gary Shandling Show and Larry Sanders, people would ask, where's Gary's next big project? Where's the third show? And she looked out in the audience at all of Gary's peers 
and she said, We're the third show. He spent his last years helping so many people, me included. A third of me is Gary. So, these are the words on the back of the envelope that Gary had jotted down that Judd had found at Gary's house after Gary died and sent to me. And the words were, the gift comment that Scott Carter said, and that is why you are here. So as we ended the conversation, I asked Judd if I could keep the envelope, and he said, yes, of course. So I framed it, and it hangs on the wall of my office today. That's our show. Email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on all social media platforms at yegodspodcast. Reviews at Apple Podcasts may be read on a future episode. And until then, thanks for listening.